The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. Ooh. 11. Let's try. Good morning, church. Hey, online, I hope you said good morning, too, because you are real people. And uh, I believe that because I see the numbers every single week, even though I can't see you. Glad you're with us. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. Good to be with you. Would you grab your Bibles, please? We're going to uh, open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today. If you have a phone or a tablet, open that up. If you're with us at home, uh, go ahead, grab your Bible, open it up. 1 Corinthians 9. We'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, so just... That uh, it's, I think it's helpful to know what version we're reading out of. So First uh, Corinthians 9 is where, is where we're going to be all morning. Um, as you're turning there, uh, my second job as a teenager, my second job as a teenager was at a Christian bookstore. Uh, I've told you about my first job as a teenager, uh, which was my worst job at McDonald's, right, where I was cleaning out the ball pit and I found a rolled up diaper. Like that was, you know, that was my first job. It was not good. I'm loving it. I did not, right? Uh, that was really bad. Second job uh, was not as bad at the Christian bookstore. Definitely weird, though. I mean, it was a weird experience. I don't know if you've been to a Christian bookstore, but one of the things at the Christian bookstore that I worked at that we sold were kind of like kitschy little items to help Christians share their faith. Just weird little things. And uh, maybe one of the strangest ones, and I brought it for you today. Uh, this is the Evangel Cube. We sold these at Family Christian uh, Bookstore when I worked there. Uh, this is the Evangel Cube uh, right here. It is a uh, you know it's about it's it's pr- proposed to help making sharing your faith a little bit more simple. And nothing says simple like a Rubik's cube, right? So like, why not? You know, I mean, who wouldn't want this tool? Okay, but uh, the Evangel cube, the doctrine of the Evangel cube is solid. Okay, I just want you to, let's walk through it real quick, just for fun, okay? Because uh, the doctrine's right on, okay? Uh, man and God are separated, okay? Sin separates man and God, but don't worry. Jesus went to the cross, okay? So Jesus went to the cross for you, uh, and after that, he was laid in the tomb for three days, but don't worry, because you know what comes next, right? Bam, the resurrection, all right? He's alive. Again, there's Easter, Jesus in a very shiny white robe. Uh, that is very cool. But now what's happened, the cross has become a bridge for us to get back to God, back to heaven. And then, uh, you know, finally, uh, you get the right hand of fellowship with Jesus away from the fires of hell, right? Right there. Those are the fires of hell. And this glowy thing is heaven, apparently. So uh, I, I have no real qualms with the theology of the Evangel Cube. Okay. Uh, this week, I was just thinking about this. And, th- and I thought, at, at what point, like, how do you get to the point where you actually use this? Like, that's my real question about the Evangel Cube. It's like, at what point, like, I can't even fathom, all right, where you're somewhere in the world and you whip out the Evangel Cube and you're ready to use it. Like, are you supposed to carry this in your backpack or like in your pocket? I don't know how this thing works. I mean, I imagine maybe you're at the mall, right? Just at Park Meadows and, and you strike up a random conversation with somebody. Hey, yo, you're at the mall, right? Okay, would you like to go to heaven? And the guy's like, well, I'm actually just here to buy some Dockers. But yeah, I suppose I'd prefer heaven to the alternative. And you're like, well, this is providential. And then you just, ah, you know, you got your cube and you're ready to go. It's just 
I don't understand. It's a, it's a strange thing. And this is what we do. Like, this is not the only thing. This is just my favorite one. Uh, but there are lots of things that Christians kind of manufacture to help us share our faith. Because here's the reality. Sharing our faith, like evangelism, it's hard. It, it feels like a daunting task often. Uh, and what happens more often than not is we try to make it gimmicky. Right? We try to simplify it to make it a little bit uh, gimmicky or uh, the next step down is we, we just say, hey, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to leave it to like the, the paid professionals, like pastors, like Chris, you do this. I, you know, I'm not really into evangelism or worst of all, we just give up on it. More often than not, I think many evangelicals just kind of give up essentially on sharing their faith. But Paul today is going to give us another push towards loving others. That's kind of what he's been pushing us towards the last few weeks. Uh, Last week, it was about sacrificing our rights for others, like laying down our rights for others. The week before that was about like not dividing over non-essential things, like laying down uh, our opinions about things that aren't really that important for the sake of others. Today, he's going to talk about sharing our faith, loving others by sharing about who Christ is. Uh, So let's just see what Paul has for us. Uh, I think there's something to learn here, and I hope that it serves us well. So here we go. First Corinthians chapter nine. We're going to look at verse 19 and following. For though I am free from all, he's referring to all this freedom, all these rights, all the things we've talked about the last few weeks. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This is where Paul begins, okay? He's, he's saying, hey, all that stuff we've talked about, you know, why I'm not willing to get sucked into divisive secondary arguments, like the reason why I'm willing to lay down all my rights for others, essentially, he says, I do it. And these are his words that I might win more of them. Now, that word win, uh, we, that feels kind of like hoaxy, a little evangelistic guy on a street corner with a bullhorn thing. But, but, but we'll talk about this word winning. He's talking about winning people to Christ, about sharing his faith, about evangelism. And that word win, it occurs five times in our text today. He just says, win, win, win. And so we need, to, we need to pay attention to that word, winning people to Christ. Verse 20, he goes on, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So, so Paul starts, he, he starts to walk us through some categories of people. And the first two categories, he says, the Jews and those under the law. And and though they are kind of, he's meaning, I think, two separate categories. I'm just going to clump those two categories together for our purposes today. Okay, likely Paul is referring to two groups. First, when he says to the Jews, he's likely referring to ethnic Hebrews, people who can trace their lineage to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then likely, very likely, those under the law, those aren't your ethnic Jews, but those are more likely Gentiles who essentially have put themselves under the law. They've essentially converted to Judaism, even though they are not ethnically Jewish. But for our purposes today, I think we can put all of verse 20 together. And the other thing that's kind of confusing right off the bat with this is that he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. And the question is this, Isn't Paul a Jew? 
Like he's already Jewish, right? Like, so what is he talking about? Yes, he is a Jew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He says that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he's like an elite Jew. He's like top level ethnic Hebrew male. But when he says, like, I became a Jew, like, what does that mean? Well, he's referring, I think, to uh, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, As we studied the Old Testament Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are all of these laws, specifically uh, one category are ceremonial laws of washings or dietary restrictions, eating clean and unclean things, festivals, religious practices, lots and lots of these ceremonial laws. And Paul makes it really clear in other parts of the New Testament that as a Christian, as a Christ follower, when Jesus saves you, uh, there's no longer any need to uphold those ceremonial laws. That's what he teaches us because even though he is still ethnically a Jew, more so he knows that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. You're you're no longer bound by those ceremonial laws. He was free. That's what he's saying. But now in the text, he's saying, hey, if it would open a door to my friends, my relatives, my brothers who are Jewish, I'd forsake all of those things. I take all those things back on. I would become Jewish essentially for their sake, for to, to, to gain hearing for the gospel. He said, I'd put those things aside and listen to me. He would sacrifice his very freedom rather than lose a relationship where he might get a chance to witness for Christ. And this would not be fun, by the way. To re-become a Jew would not be fun. At one point, he's taking Timothy, and he's hoping that they can do some ministry uh, to uh, some, some of the Jewish people and share the gospel. And Timothy is not a Jew. And so he actually has Timothy get circumcised so that he can have a hearing with the Jews to share the gospel. Can you imagine if you're Timothy? Like, that's no, like, I am not signing up for that. No chance. This would not be, no more bacon? Just put that aside too? Can you imagine? They're almost the same. Circumcision and bacon, right? Like they're big ticket items here, okay? Paul's saying to win the Jews, I'd do it. I'd lay it all down. It was his sacrifice that he's willing to do. He goes on to another group though in verse 21. Verse 21, he says to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but uh, the out, I'm sorry, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So now he, he turns from pointing to the Jews and he points to the Gentiles, those outside the law, those not underneath the law of the Old Testament. And I would say in, in our world, you could say this is people who are secular, people who are not religious, people who are atheistic, you know, whatever category. These are not people who, you know, follow God's law. And and the Gentiles in Corinth specifically, they had their own set of moral standards and, and way of living. And so when Paul says, hey, I became as one outside the law, that doesn't mean that he jumps on board with everything that Corinth is doing. He's not like, hey, I'm going to do everything that is outside the law just so that I can get a hearing from these guys, like which would have been like a hedonistic lifestyle and like going to worship with, with cult prostitutes at the temples of the Greek gods. Like he's not becoming a pagan sinner. He's just saying, I want to leave that door open so that I can witness to these people. So I'll put it like this. He valued his friendship and potential witness to those Gentiles more than he valued correcting their behavior or 
removing them from his life just because they had vastly different belief systems. So he's like, hey, to the Jews, I, I'll pick up the religious burden. To the Gentiles, I'm not casting them out because I vehemently disagree with their lifestyle. I still want to keep that relationship going. He adds one more category in verse 22, one more category of people. And he says this, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And then the famous statement, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, we don't exactly know uh, who Paul is referring to when he talks about the weak. There's a, a couple of options that commentators bat around, but I think most likely when he talks about the weak, he's talking about those who are very new to the faith, new Christians. I think that's what he is dealing with here. Or Christians who are kind of infantile in their beliefs where they have incomplete theology or maybe even problematic theology. And so I don't think he's necessarily saying that these people, this group, the weak, are not believers in Jesus, but that they rather are saved and they're fragile. They're weak. Like, uh, think of like a child. They aren't quite developed to the place where, where they've got all this figured out. And thus, we need to bear gently with them so as not to abandon them or worse, cause them to fall away. And so he's to say to the weak, I'll become weak. This is kind of what he's been talking about in previous chapters. I'll lay down my rights. I don't care if, my, if it makes me look weak. I will become like these people. Now, with those three kind of categories of people in mind, I want to engage this, this idea that, that most Christians really tend to uh, fall into two opposite and equal uh, problematic polars when it comes to dealing with people in the world. And so I'm going to, I'll call them uh, sectarianism and syncretism. So big words today. Okay. But we'll put on our, our big boy theology pants and say, okay, these are, these are really important ideas, sectarianism and syncretism. Let me define these for us and work through why I think they're problematic polars for Christians to fall into first sectarianism. This often happens in conservative breeds of Christianity where we want to protect ourselves from the world, right? We want to protect our families from the world. We don't want to be negatively influenced or like catch whatever kind of diseases out there, sin disease or something. And so what we do is we err, I think, often into sectarianism uh, where we separate and we segment and we run, like we run from the world and we shun everybody out there. And there's some real important protections that you should have for you and your family, but this is taking that to the nth degree. In the, in the word sectarian, you see the word sect, right? We've become a sect away from the world, and Paul does not do this. Paul, he's like, hey, Jews, yeah, Gentiles, absolutely. Even weak Christians, I'm not scared. I am not. I'm in it to win. I will do anything, to win some to Christ. 
So, so you've got this sectarianism on one side, but the other extreme, and this one I think is even more pervasive, is what we call syncretism. And syncretism, this is where we so blur the lines between what the Bible says and what our world says that we end up indistinguishable from the world. We sync up with the world. And Fathom, this is maybe my greater fear for most of us in this church, in our community, because often in trying to be liked or, or, or be relevant or not be some sort of like weird Christian, prude, Christian, uncool Christian, I think the temptation for us is that we would just behave like the rest of the world around us. I mean, that's my temptation. It's not to wall up. It's to kind of push through a, a bit too far. Paul would unequivocally say no to this too. He would say no to this as well. Because he's not like, hey, to the drunks, I became a drunk. No. To the swingers, I became a swinger. Are you serious? Like, that's not, are you, I mean, it's, that's crazy. We don't have Christian drunks. We don't have Christian swingers. Right? We don't have Christian country music. This, these are just some things we cannot tolerate. Am I right? We ought to outright reject these things. They are incongruent with the truth. Absolutely. See, Paul does not err to either side. Sectarianism, syncretism, he does not err to either side. Rather, he says this, I try to articulate the gospel to who Jesus is in as many different ways as I can possibly do that. To as many different people as I can possibly do that. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes into why in verse 23, just kind of caps it off. Why do I do all these things? I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them, those who I'm sharing this with, in its blessings. That's what he says. And that's our mission, church. That's our mission as Christians. It's not Fathom's mission. It's our mission. If you are a believer in Christ, it's your mission. We do everything for the sake of the gospel. We become all things to all people that in all things we might win some. And that's my hope for us as a church. Goodness, that we wouldn't fall to either side of that, that, that path. The pull would not be too strong to either polar. We wouldn't fall into some sort of like liberal syncretism where we just blur all the lines, nor would we fall into some conservative separatism where we just build walls but that we would be on mission together sent from here into our families and into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces and into our schools, like everywhere for the sake of the gospel to win as many as possible. So Paul says, Hey, that's what I'm all about. Now in the, the last few verses of this chapter, he's going to illustrate how to do this. Okay. So, so th- these verses get pulled out of context all the time and I'll point out why and how, but these verses are about evangelism, how to do evangelism. So let's read the last few verses of the, the chapter. And then we'll dig into this illustration together. Verse 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. 
I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, so, so Paul uses uh, an illustration that would have been very easy for his hearers, his original hearers, the Corinthian church, to understand. This is a culturally relevant illustration for how they are supposed to win as many people to Christ as they can. And the illustration is a race. He says, run. He's saying, you want to win as many people as possible to the the gospel? It's a race. You got to to run to win. That's what he's saying. And and this would have made sense to these Corinthians specifically because uh, what we what we understand is that uh, there were a th- there was a thing in the in uh, the first century called the Isthmian Games, which are very similar to the Olympics. Like the Olympics were the most popular games in the ancient Greco-Roman world, but second to them were what are called the Isthmian Games. I can't even pronounce that. That's really S T H is a weird sound together. Okay, Isthmian Games. Uh, and I studied this week. These games happened every other year, they, every second year, just outside of the city of Corinth. So they would have been very familiar. And many of the Olympians who who, who participated in the Olympics would come and and play in these games as well. They were they were very popular. These games. So Paul is exhorting these Christians in Corinth uh, to join him in becoming all things for all people that they might win some. And he illustrates by telling them that it's like, this is like the Olympics. The most, what, the most popular uh, event in these games was running the race, the foot race. And so he's like, hey, you've got to run to win. And, and, and all through the New Testament, we find uh, that, that, that the metaphor that the Bible, the biblical writers uh, give us for how the Christian life is to be lived is like a race. This isn't just here. This is all through uh, the New Testament that, that we are, uh, our life of faith is like a race. It's like running. But, but, but see, if we take this out of context, we'll just think, oh yeah, I should beat my body into submission. I should probably work out, should probably be self-disciplined, all these things. Those are great things. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But in this context, the, the crux of Paul's argument is that simply entering the race and running does not automatically make you a winner. He's not talking about just being in the race, like getting saved, being on the run, Sure, you might be a Christian, but Christians must not only join the race, Christians also must put forth every effort to finish it well. You can't just be in the race. You got to run. You got to train. You got to run to win. You can't just saunter around the track and expect to get some sort of participation trophy here. Right? This is not what this is. It's not some sort of like everyone gets a participation ribbon and you're all winners and your feelings are more important than winning. Right, That sort of nonsense is not lining up with what Paul is talking about here. He says, you got to run. You got to run with self-control. You have to discipline yourself. You have to run for the prize. You don't run aimlessly. If you want to see people won to Christ, you got to work at it. But man, all too often we treat evangelism like sharing our faith. We treat it like we're just kind of coasting. I do this. Like you just kind of coast through. Yeah, sure. I'd love to share my faith. 
I'd love to evangelize, but man, it's hard. So we, we might be in the race, but we don't run with purpose or vigor or a plan or a strategy. We just kind of jog and hope for the best. And yeah, maybe we'll share our faith if it just kind of happens, but, but we just kind of hope things work out. This was very convicting to me this week. Paul's words are instructional for us, church. We're to become all things to all people so that we might win some. And you just can't hope to coast in for a run. That's why he likens it to the games. Athletes do everything to shave just a little bit of time off their run. Shaving their legs, wearing inappropriate spandex, right? Like things that are making me uncomfortable, but it's to win. They got to win. They want to, sh- you want to win? You've got to do every, take every ounce of fat off your body. You do everything for the win. You just can't coast. And so in light of that, like I was like, I got to think of ways to actually help us do this better. So I have two crazy applicable steps for us today on how to run. Okay. How to kind of up our evangelism game. If you're nervous, don't be okay. Like just chill out, especially if you're an introvert. I know you're like, he's going to make me talk to somebody. I'm not okay. Just hold on a second. Just hold your breath. We'll deal with this. Okay. But I have two, I think crazy applicable steps for how we can become more, uh, all things for all people that we might win some. So here's the first thing I got everybody at Fathom church in Evangicube. Uh, <laughs> no, I did not. How awesome would that be, though, if there was a bucket of Evangel Cubes as you left, right? You go to the pool later today, and you're like, man, you think it's hot out here? <laughs> right? Can you imagine? I'd go to that pool. That'd be awesome. And listen, I've mocked the cube, okay? I've been mocking the cube all day. But listen, I, I would bet somebody has given their life to the Lord for, because of the Evangel Cube. And so God bless this. God saves. We don't save. He can use whatever tool he wants. I just like to make fun of things. Uh, but no, we are not doing that, okay? Um, here's the two steps. Here's the two steps. First thing I want to call us to is this. I want you to pray. I want you to pray The first step to sharing your faith, to witnessing, to evangelizing is to pray. So actually what I'd love for you to do is if you're taking notes, if you have a phone or a note or whatever, I'd like you to write this down. Even if you're at home, I'd like you to write down the name of one person. Don't freak out on me introverts, okay? Uh, I want you to write down the name of one person that you know who does not know Jesus, who you think, man, I would love if they came to know Jesus. Just one person, one name, okay? How many people do we want to come to Christ? We want everyone to come to Christ, okay? We want everyone, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Like we want that. But I don't think it helps you or me if I just get us all riled up in some sort of like emotional fervor. And it's like, we're gonna take back Littleton, right? Everyone in Littleton, 44,000 residents, Jesus, right? Like I just don't know that that is gonna be real practical. We pray like crazy for that stuff. But the reality is this, I just want you to think of one person. I mean, Paul, okay, can we agree that Paul's a decent evangelist? Probably better than most of us. I mean, I'd say that's a fair bet, okay? Uh, Paul said, I became all things to all people that I might save some. I don't know how many some is, but it's not all, okay? It's some. I'm just saying, we can, we can even take that down one bar and say, what about one? What about one? What about one more? One more person in the kingdom one more life changed 
by God. One more family affected by that person. Like one more. At some point, you were one more, by the way. At some point, you were somebody's one more. So I'm just asking you to think of one more person, okay? I want you, with that one person, that one name, I'd like for you to commit to praying for your one more person every single day for the next two weeks. Just to pray for that person, for God to do something in their life to draw them to himself. I think that's the first step in evangelism. I think you got to start there. Who is that one more for you? Allison, you're not writing anything down, so I'm just trusting you, okay? Uh, I have three. I'm a pastor, okay? So it's like, oh, I got to have three, okay? So I've got three, just so you know. I've got three one mores uh, in my life. I have three people that I have committed to pray for every single day. Some of them I've been doing it for years, but praying for that person every day, for just for God to just reach into their mess and pull them out. For God to just awaken their heart to his realities. Like I've just, and I could show you my prayer journal every single day. I'm praying for these three people. So, so pray for one more. Okay. Pray for one more. Here's the second thing though. If you want to win, if you want to run to win, uh, you need to proclaim. So, okay. Introverts. Okay, hold on a second. Like, don't freak out yet. Okay, pray and proclaim. So this is where I want you to up the ante a little bit, okay? Uh, I want you to pray in that same prayer for God to open up an opportunity for you to talk about Christ to those people. I'm not saying you've got to like, hey, go knock on their door. Maybe, like maybe that's what the Lord will call you to. But like, here's what I would like for you to do. I'd like you to pray every single day for that person and then up your ante and say in that prayer, and Lord, if you have a way, open a door for me to proclaim who you are. Okay, pray and proclaim. So I told you, okay, I pray for my three every single day. Uh, but then additionally, uh, since Marcia and I moved into our new neighborhood about 18 months ago, uh, we've started praying for our neighbors. So on our cul-de-sac, there are 14 houses on our block. And so I pray for a different house, a different family every single day. So I pray for four, I guess, every day. One is a household in my block and then my other three. And so every other week I'm praying for one of those houses. Like I, they, they get a prayer, they get two prayers a month for me. It's all I can afford two prayers a month. Okay. I'm a pastor. All right. So, uh, and so, yeah, I, I pray for them and I pray blessings over them. And I was reminded this week that I need to up my ante a little bit. I got to do what I practice, what I'm preaching. Okay. So I started praying for God to move in their lives, but also for God to, to give me an opportunity. Just started praying that, you know, I started talking to God about that. And sometimes, hear me, it's happened in our first 18 months. There have been times where God gives me opportunities just outside hanging out with my neighbors and I get an opportunity and listen, I run hard and I take that opportunity and I go all at it and I talk about Jesus. They all know I'm a pastor. So I've got like that free pass. They kind of expect me to, right? So like I, I take those opportunities. Other times I'm telling you, man, like I just chicken out. Like I see the door opened. It's like the Holy Spirit's like, here's your shot. And I'm like, uh-uh. And I walk past it. And they know I'm a pastor and I still walk past it. It's, it's, I'm ashamed of that. Uh, so I started praying this this week for my neighbors. Uh, I got through seven neighbors um, and then it happened. 
So, I mean, don't pray unless you're willing to, okay? Because it, because God will actually, so I, I, I was outside, uh, one of my neighbors, uh, we were just chatting, you know, about summer and like the heat and like, Oh, do you want to do slip and slide later? Like that kind of stuff. Uh, coronavirus. And, and then all of a sudden he just got serious. Like, I don't know how it exactly happened, but we had like this, this moment of spiritual conversation right there. And I, and I pulled out my Avenger cube and I was like, let's do this. You know, and I did not. Okay. But like, listen, I, I don't know what God will do as you pray those prayers. But what if, what if my neighbor's my one more? Like, what if he's my one more? And what if I didn't have that conversation and I missed it? Like, what if, what if I'm supposed to be that for him? And that was God's divine appointment for me. I've asked this before, and I think it's a, it's a really deep question, but what, what if God said yes to every single prayer that you prayed in the last seven days? Think back to the last seven days of prayer. Maybe that's nothing, okay? Maybe you've asked him for nothing. But what if he said yes to every single prayer from you in the last seven days? Here's the question. Would anything be different? Would the kingdom be different? I don't say that to guilt you. I'm just convicted by that question. Honestly, we pray such weak prayers. I pray such weak prayers. Right, you're at your D group or whatever, small group. It's about time to have a meal. Uh, somebody asks you to pray for the food, right? And instantaneously you're like, oh crap. All right, I better think of something really good right now, right? You ever do this? By the way, that's the real prayer. I don't know if you know that. That's the real prayer. When you're like, ah, that's the real time of prayer right there. And then you start the fake prayer, right? And the fake prayer goes like, hey, dear God, thank you for this food and for the hands that prepared it. Let it nourish our bodies Amen, right? And that's the weak prayer. You pray these things? I pray these things. Do you have to pray for the food to nourish your body? That's what food does. Food just nourishes you. You don't need to pray for that to happen as if somebody starts eating and you're like, spit that out, get that out. Are you crazy? It's going to turn to poison, right? Because I haven't prayed for it yet. That's not how it works. You don't go to the pool and be like, Lord, let the water be wet, right? That's just... I'm not saying that you shouldn't bring things to him, but, but we pray weak prayers. We pray prayers that we think are going to make us look spiritual to one another. We pray prayers that we think are going to make us feel better. But I want you to commit church to pray every single day for one more. And also for God to give you the opportunity to proclaim and, and I'll just say this, I'll put this out there. If you send me a message this week with your one more's name, like a text or a email or whatever, I will commit to pray for that person as well every day. But I'll just tell you this much. I will pray that you get the opportunity to proclaim and I'm already one for one on it. So I've got some sort of special juice going here. So don't send me the name unless you really want to talk to that person about Jesus, okay? One more. Here's my main point for us this morning. When Jesus is everything to you, you will stop at nothing for others. When he's everything to you, stop at nothing for others. You just never know. You never know what might happen when you pray and you proclaim. You never know. I mean, think back to your own life with Jesus. You were somebody's one more. 
I was somebody's one more. I came to know Jesus uh, when I was in high school because a 19-year-old friend of mine, he was a construction worker named Jared, he decided to become all things to me, a 16-year-old kind of punk. And he just would hang out with me and he would teach me to drive a stick shift and we went camping together. He became all things to me and then he demonstrated who Jesus was in his life and he declared it with his mouth. He told me about Christ and I gave my life to Christ because of Jared. I was his one more. Can you imagine if you were a Jared to someone in your life? Like, this is our mission, church. Like, one more. You, there's a one more, I think, for each one of us. And then somebody will say, well, what do you do when that one maybe gets saved? There's another one. This is how God builds his kingdom. Jared's and one more's. I'm praying that we make some waves in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together. Mm. Lord, this is a great passage. This is a favorite passage of many of us. We have heard this preached. We probably have this cross-stitched somewhere in our house. Like we have this passage in our minds and yet it is yet to somehow migrate south into our hearts for many of us. Like we know that we, we should share the hope that we have found in Christ. And we know we want, Lord, to, to become all things to all people that we might save some, Lord. And, and for us, we want to just, like, I know the three people that I pray for every day. And I want them so desperately to come to know you. Lord, this is a challenging passage and I want to run. I want to, and I think I speak for our church, we want to run. We don't want to just jog this thing out. We want to win. So Lord, whoever that person is for us in our minds right now, Lord, would you draw him or herself to you? And Lord, would you, through some means, it doesn't have to be forced, we don't have to shoehorn it into some weird conversation with the cube, but, but would you some point in the next couple of weeks give us an opportunity, open a door for us to proclaim who you are to us? Lord, grow your kingdom through us as we demonstrate and declare the gospel. We do it all for your sake, Father, not for our own. We love you. We praise you today in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.